Welcome to Garden DC, the podcast about everything gardening in the Washington DC and Mid-Atlantic region. I'm your host, Kathy Gents. I'm the editor of Washington Gardener Magazine, and we're aimed at gardening enthusiasts, people who grow everything from edibles to ornamentals, natives to exotics. If it grows in our area, that's what we talk about. This week on the Garden DC podcast, we're joined by horticulturalist Jessica Walliser. She's the co-founder of the popular gardening website, SavvyGardening.com. She's also an author of several gardening books, and we're going to talk today about her newest one. Welcome, Jessica. Thank you, Kathy. I appreciate the invitation. I'm happy to be here. Well, we're so glad to have you. And uh, among your many hats that you wear besides horticulturalist and author and co-founder of a blog and everything else, I see devoted bug lover. <laughs> so <laughs> That might be perhaps my biggest accomplishment, right? <laughs> <laughs> yep. So I was going to say, at some point in this conversation, we're going to have to talk about Brood 10, or sometimes as it's called here, Brood X, uh, that's converging on the D.C. area uh, in mid-May to mid-June. So maybe we'll we'll save a little bit of time for talking about those guys. And I can speak from experience because we had our 17-year brood here about two years ago, and it was very dramatic for lots of people. So <laughs> uh, yes, I can share from experience. That would be great. Yeah, I vivid remember memories of, I guess it was 2004 and 1987. <laughs> <laughs> I still, still remember both of those and where I was during both of those cicada swarms. Interesting. Yeah, ours <laughs> this this time this most recent one um, was way more insects than the seventeen year event prior. Um, it didn't even compare. I mean, it was just it was it was wild. It was look out my office window and literally watch them going back and forth in front of the window for hours it was crazy wow. yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> and it's not just the sight it's the sound exactly how, how yeah. deafening they could be yeah well really quick for our listeners um since you're not in the dc area let's describe where you are gardening at and and calling in from Sure. So right now I live um, uh, just outside of Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. So I'm west of Pittsburgh. I'm actually equidistant between the Ohio border and Pittsburgh. So, um, but I, and I've lived here for, oh, let's see, a little over 25 years. Um, I actually grew up north Philadelphia. So on the opposite side of the state. Uh, But I've got a niece that lives in McLean, Virginia. So I'm there visiting her quite a bit. Great. So I assume because you are a bug lover that you're going to time a visit to that niece during that brood 10 time period. I suppose it depends on what COVID has in store for us during that time period. Right now, I'm not traveling anywhere, but... That's true. That's true. We do have to still account for that, even though it'll be a little bit of bug craziness in the area. Agreed. And so you went from Philadelphia to Pittsburgh, but but stayed in the PA general area. And I know you have or still have uh, the Organic Gardeners um, radio program out of Pittsburgh. Is that still going? It's not. Well, actually, it is. But my co-host is doing it alone now. So uh, Doug Oster and I 
uh, started that show, well, let's see, it would be 16 years ago now. And uh, I was on air with him for 15 years every single Sunday morning here in Pittsburgh. And then last year, it was actually about a year ago now, uh, I decided to step away just because I had so much else going on professionally that, um, you know, some things had to go. And those things that I decided to do were a lot of the, you know, smaller freelance things that I was taking on that just became a little bit too much to handle. So I've, I've left the show in very good hands with Doug. Um, and I know he enjoys it so much. I always enjoyed it too, but you know, you know, when it's time to step away from something and, um, I loved my run there, but I also love what I do now. So it's all good. Mm-hmm. And we're big fans of Doug Oster on the Garden DC podcast. We had him come on last year to talk about everything tomato growing. And I know we're going to have him come back on to talk again soon about some of his other favorite topics like garlic. Yes, <laughs> yes. garlic and tomatoes are near and dear to his heart. That is for mm-hmm. sure. Yeah, and he's not the only one. <laughs> he definitely isn't it. the only one. <laughs> For sure. Okay. So let's talk a little bit about your gardening website, SavvyGardening.com. So that's a group website? It is. Yeah. So uh, it was started in 2014. Uh, We technically went official with it as a business in 2016. So we've been doing it for a while. Uh, My two partners in the business are Nikki Jabor, who is a garden writer up in Halifax, Nova Scotia. And she specializes in year-round food growing. So um, she has a couple of books out about that. And then Tara Nolan, who is a garden writer from um, just outside of Ontario, Canada and um or toronto canada excuse me in ontario and uh yeah so we started it sort of as like a fun thing to do um we actually met at a garden com meeting our, which now is uh, used to be the garden writers association it's now garden com and we met at one of those meetings in 2013 maybe we'd sort of known each other a little bit before then but we really kicked it off and we thought hey this this would be kind of something fun to do together. So we just started it as a casual thing. And by 2016, we had such good traffic and great feedback and lots of comments from people. We thought, eh, we got to make this more official. And, you know, it's just exploded ever since. And we just have so much fun doing it. Great. And for those listeners looking for it, it's Savvy with two Vs, gardening.com, no spaces or dashes or anything. So check that website out. And your previous books are Good Bad, Good Bug. I was going to say Good Bad, but Bad Bug. (laughs) (laughs) Say that five times fast. Right. Good Bug, Bad Bug. Who's Who, What They Do, and How to Manage Them Organically. Um, So tell us a little bit about that book. So that that book has been out for quite some time. It's I like to call it the little book that could because it just keeps chugging along. Uh, it's basically designed to be a little field guide that you take out to your garden with you. It's spiral bound. Um, the, the pages are heavy laminated so they can get wet. They can get mud all over them and you can just wipe them off. Uh, each page profiles either a pest insect at the beginning of the book along with their control measures, some physical controls, product controls, description of them. Uh, And then in the back of the book are some beneficial insects as well and information on, you know, how you can discern the good bugs from the bad bugs and the different roles that they play in the garden. So it is just like a little field guide that's meant to be taken out into the garden with you. And it does really well because I think people, um, it's easy to use, you know, people want that easy, concise, quick information. And I think that book is really uh, hits the mark on all of that. I think so too. I have it handy on my coffee table and I've 
brought it out to the garden myself when I've looked at, say, a ladybug larva, and I said, is that really it? <laughs> and I yeah. took the picture out to hold it against it, because sometimes you have your phone with you, and you could always look up something on the phone, of course, on a photo, but there's the glare of the sun. So having a printed photo actually is great, and having it laminated and weatherproof is even better. Agreed. And I always say, too, you know, that the Internet is is good for a lot of things. And mm -hmm. looking at bugs, it can be really good for looking at bugs. You know, you come across a strange beetle and you're like, mm, it's it's orange and black beetle. And I don't know what that is. And so you go into your, your search engine, you type in orange and black beetle, right? And look at all the pictures and try to find. But then you go to that page for information and you never know the legitimacy of that information, right? I mean, there's a lot of... Um, unfacts, maybe we'll call them <laughs> out there, you know, that you're not really mm -hmm. quite sure if that's a reliable source of information on whether or not that's a pest. And if it is a pest, how do you manage it? How do you do it organically and safely? So I think it's nice to have somebody else do all of that work, right? And put it together in a book format like this. It's really easy to use. And I have to say, having it on my coffee table, it is a conversation starter. <laughs> people I am are sure like, it is. <laughs> people are like, "Oh, is is that a good bag bug? Is that a bad bug?" Um, so it's funny to see what people's opinions are and their reactions to it are. Yeah, because everybody definitely has opinions on insects. That's for sure. Um, you know, even longtime gardeners just you know they still make the assumption that all the bugs that you see in your garden are bad. And mm -hmm. the truth is, it's it's not. It's less than one percent. Uh, of the insects that have been identified in the world are actually classified as agricultural or human pests. So it's a very, very small amount. So the most of the guys you come across in your garden are going to be either benign or beneficial. So, you know, don't automatically make assumptions about them. That's really reassuring to know. And where would you put cicada on that spectrum? Well, I would put them actually in the benign category, really, although they do, you know, the, the female cicadas, they do damage branch tips, especially on young trees, and that's simply by laying eggs, right? <clears throat> Excuse me. So they have this ovipositor, which is the sort of mechanism that they use their their body to lay eggs and it's sort of like a little saw and it cuts these little slits in the tree branches and then she inserts her eggs into those slits. So the larva then live in those little slits for a while and then they drop out to the ground and that's where they feed. They feed on the roots of the trees. But it's very, very rare. I mean, if if they outright killed trees, there wouldn't be any trees anymore every 17 years, right? I mean, their goal is not to destroy our trees. You're going to have some branch die back. Um, you know, the roots underground might have some minor damage, but it's very, very rare that they're going to outright kill a tree. So um, for me, they're considered to be benign. There are some, um, you know, predatory, like frogs will eat them. Small garter snakes will eat them if they're caught on the ground. You know, birds, some certain birds will eat them as well. So they do serve a role in the food chain too. Um, and, and it's miraculous, really, when you think about their whole life cycle is miraculous. 17 years underground um, to emerge just this mating frenzy and then a mass die-off. And it's really astounding and breathtaking when you think about it that way. So for me, you know, there's something to be appreciated and admired, even though they might cause some branch tip dieback. But, you know, hey, they've been here a heck of a lot longer than we humans have. So, mm -hmm. And there's such a great um, symbol of rebirth, um, how they've been used in other cultures. And it kind of feels like 
they're right on time for us during this COVID period <laughs> to be to be that symbol of renewal and rebirth. I hadn't thought of that, but that's a very, very good, good analogy there. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, they certainly demonstrate the, uh, I guess, the strength of life <laughs> and determination uh, so, since they go through so much uh, just for that emergence in that short period. Um, what I was going to say, what my memory from 2004 is I was pretty new in my current garden and I had just planted some old-fashioned lilac uh, shrubs and those got hammered by the cicadas because <laughs> it was the exact right pencil thickness of the branches and that hadn't been on any of the lists that I'd known about like I you know checked all the lists for don't plant these trees they they really like these shrubs so add lilacs to that list <laughs> but yeah but the lilacs, they're still around today they're still healthy you know we had some dieback as you said but they did not kill the plant yeah and it was the wolf I have a wolf eye um, dogwood here and that was their favorite at my property um, and we actually had some neighbors that sort of wrapped their young trees in floating row cover like they stapled it around the tree to keep the cicadas from feeding on those and it worked very very well so there's always the option if you have a young tree that you're really worried about just do that and or tool go buy a couple of yards of tool from the fabric store and wrap your trees in you know the small trees in those big trees you don't have to worry a lick about those because they're they're resilient and they're going to be just fine it's just the young ones that you might want to consider protecting mm-hmm. yeah i already bought 10 yards of tool thinking ahead very good very good (laughs) for both decoration and for for cicada purposes but yeah it's only for the small um fruit trees that i have right now that i'm like the rest can go the rest can get a little damage but those i'm concerned about but you know tool is pretty cheap at a couple dollars a yard at the most so i feel like all the fabric stores in our area are about to be slammed and they don't even know it (laughs) right and eventually they'll run out of white and people are going to have to buy like green and purple Mm -hmm. tool and lavender so it could be very fun yeah, it's going to be very pretty. Mine is actually pink, if anybody cares to look. There you go. <laughs> That's the one I sourced because of both the uh, upcoming Cherry Blossom uh, Festival, where we're doing a pink theme for decorating our porches in the area uh, with pink decorations. I thought it would do double duty. After it comes down for the Cherry Blossom Festival, it'll go up on the trees. And, and pale pink, will it'll blend in, I figure. I like how you think, Kathy. <laughs> Thanks. <laughs> So you weren't always a bug person. Um, how about when you were uh, a little child? How did you start getting into gardening? And were you the type that was like, don't touch me with that dirt or bugs? Or were you always fascinated by them? Oh, I was always. You can ask my mom. I mean, my sister and I used to make mud pies on the back patio, mud meatballs. You know, we'd run our own little pretend stores playing in the dirt and things. I was always, always outdoors. Um, I didn't always like gardening, right? Because I always had to do things like, you know, shell the peas and weed the garden and stuff like that. So I wasn't necessarily a big fan of gardening when I was really young, but I always loved being outdoors. That's where we spent all our time pretty much. Um, it wasn't, it was actually what it, what it was is I, we, I grew up in a really small town and we had one little like garden center and flower shop that was in the town. And that's where, of course, my mom used to go to get her marigolds and petunias and geraniums to plant in the, in the front planting beds of our house. And I used to go to that greenhouse when I was really little. And I used to always tell my mom that someday I was going to work there. And, you know, she was like, oh, sure, whatever, whatever, Jessica. 
And when I turned 15, I went to the office at the high school and uh, applied for my working papers and um, went there and applied for a job. And that was my first job was working in the flower shop. Um, eventually I started working in the greenhouse there and that at, at 15 and a half and never looked back. I mean, plants are all I've ever done my whole life. It's, and ended up going to college for horticulture and made this fantastic career out of something that I love and that I find so fascinating. So I feel, feel really lucky for that. I didn't get into bugs though, until like way much later than that. I, in fact, I didn't really make the connection um, you know, having gone to college for a degree in horticulture, I was sort of always the, the entomology class I had to take or classes I had to take were all focused on, you know, handling the pests and what do you spray them with and how do you get rid of white flies on your poinsettias and things like that. Um, so it wasn't really until I was out of college for a number of years and had my own landscaping company that I really sort of started to um, you know, make the connection between organic gardening and the role of beneficial insects, pollinators in the landscape, and really started to kind of nerd out on all of it and seek more information. Yeah, I think that that's a natural journey you took, which is from uh, understanding them as a pest and then saying, hey, there's this whole other world that opens up out there. So, um, on the bug spe- spectrum, do you find uh, people's reactions to be changing over the last decade or so now that more um, publicity has gone to the honeybee plight and saving our pollinators? Um, do you find that to be a trend? I absolutely do. And it's such a welcome one for me. I'm so grateful that insects are starting to make the the press for good reasons instead of just for negative reasons. It's definitely a sea change. I mean, I'm, I'm thinking about when I graduated, you know, from, from college and for several years after that, there was no talk of pollinator gardening. I mean, I don't even think it existed back then. Um, Nobody was doing that. Nobody even knew that there were native bees. Everybody always was like honeybees, 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 right? Which are European. They were introduced here by the colonists. So, you know, you might've seen a carpenter bee or a bumblebee and you knew that they were kind of always around, but people didn't really know how to identify, you know, many of our 4,000 species of native bees. And that is changing. And it's such a cool and fascinating part of gardening And I do think that there are millions of gardeners out there like me who might have come to the connection a little bit later, but they're starting to really value the the role that insects play in the landscape. And now I think the next big thing, which I noticed started happening a couple of years ago, just when I wrote my book, Attracting Beneficial Bugs to Your Garden, um, and that one came out, and that one was like, really nobody was talking about gardening for ladybugs and parasitic wasps and hoverflies and rubberflies and all the beneficial insects that eat the pests in our garden. Not many people were talking about that outside of the, you know, potential for biocontrol in a greenhouse. So that book sort of started the journey on that and I think has really that and the work that, that um, you know, places like the Xerces Society are doing with, you know, to promote beneficial insects. I mean, that's building in sectary borders is becoming a thing. Um, and I only see that trend getting stronger over the coming few years. Hmm. I agree. And I think uh, 
it's also a learning curve for new gardeners that you start off kind of squeamish. A lot of people are like, you don't want to touch the worms or you don't want a beetle touching you. And then you quickly get over it. I think even just in a matter of exposure over a couple of weeks, you're like, after a little bit, you're like, whatever. <laughs> so I like to think that people yeah. are. I mean, I don't, I don't know that everybody's that way, but I, mm-hmm. I, I like, you know, with anything, right, the more you're exposed to it the more commonplace it becomes to you. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's that's true of anything for sure. You know, like you think about a toddler trying new foods, right? The first time they try it, they hate it, right? They say it takes, what, 10 times for a toddler to try a food before they sort of accept it as a common part or addition to their diet. So you could almost look at gardeners that way with bugs, right? You have to see that robber fly 10 times before you really are willing to appreciate the fact that it is out there eating the Japanese beetles and the, um, you know, cabbage moth caterpillars or cabbage moth butterflies, you know, out there eating those for you. But it takes, because it's creepy looking, right? So it takes you a while to get used to that. Mm -hmm. And same thing, I know my own exposure to, say, Japanese beetles or cicadas, you know, the first few times you might want to put a pair of gloves on when you pick them up and move them. And then after a while, you're like, it's too much work to go get the gloves. I'll just grab it and move it. Oh, yeah. (laughs) So, yep. Yep. So it's definitely a matter of exposure. And and then after a while, you're like, it's the same old thing. Um, So that everybody bear with it. If, if even if you're really super squeamish about that, you know, you'll get over it. How's that? <laughs> you will. You will get over it. And sometimes I wish people, um, you know, people then get to the point where it's exactly in the opposite direction, right? Where they just hmm. see something and they just automatically kill it. Oh, it's a caterpillar. I'm going to kill it, right? Because it's eating my plant. And they don't always stop to think, who is that caterpillar? You know, what is that caterpillar going to turn into? Is that caterpillar really actually destroying or harming my plant? And even if it's eating a couple of leaves, is it really going to kill the plant? Why would a caterpillar ever want to kill a plant, right? Because it needs to make sure there's food there for future generations. So it's certainly not in the caterpillar's best interest to outright kill that plant. So that that then becomes a learning process and learning your tolerance for pests. Because, you know, for me, it's very seldom that I kill a pest in my garden anymore. I hardly ever do. And that's because I understand their role in the food chain. And I also understand that it is extremely rare for a pest to outright kill a plant. They might, they might make it look not so hot for a couple of weeks, right? But you know, the plant plant is there not just for your eyes. It's there to provide an ecosystem service. And the fact that it's getting chomped on means that it's doing its role. So, you know, obviously it's a different story if it's an introduced invasive exotic pest like the emerald ash borer or, you know, I don't know, the brown marmorated stink bug or something like that, right? That doesn't belong here. That's that's a different story. But if it's a pest that's been here a long time, that's just doing what it's supposed to do, I just let it go. And I have a great garden, you know, I don't worry about them so much anymore. And the other one to be obviously looking out for now is the spotted lanternfly. Yeah. You know, the reason, the reason all those guys are so problematic and you, you probably talked to other people on your show about this before, but you know, the reason they're problematic is because they don't have a system of natural predator and prey controls here. Right. So nobody recognizes the spotted lanternfly as dinner. No birds want to eat it. No predatory insects want to eat it. You know, specialists, specialist insects have co-evolved with it to, you know, have it be a natural 
system of checks and balances. It's here on foreign territory with nobody to help control it. And that's why they get so out of control. Eventually, you see some semblance of predator and prey star cycle start to happen. Like that's what has happened with Japanese beetles. That's definitely what happened with the gypsy moths, right? The, that other organisms started to see them as a food source. And what that did was sort of stabilize their population. And now they're not as problematic as they once were. So eventually, given time, enough adaptations, you know, that, that will happen. Um, but when you get them and they're brand new, that's how come you can have the explosion. Yeah, I'm hoping that something, I don't know, uh, a little wren or something is all, all of a sudden turns that little click on in their brain <laughs> about this modern lanternfly and says, yummy, and just takes on devouring it. Yeah, eventually it'll happen. Because I'm mm -hmm. thinking about like the brown marmorated stink bugs, right? When they When they first showed up here in Pennsylvania, in the first few years we had them here, they were horrible horrible and and no birds were eating them and you know what what happened was the second season that they were here and they would collect on the back of the house in the autumn to overwinter inside we started to see our chickens coming down and collecting them off of the back of the house they Yay. would they would jump up off of the ground jump up and peck them off of the back of the house and that was after they were here for a year or two then they started to recognize oh now i know who this is right this is okay i got this then we started to see that when we would take them outside we would collect them in, in a kleenex and throw them out onto the back um, our little back deck and we started to see the birds fly down and eat them and so that's like the clue that, okay, now somebody is familiar with them. We're a couple generations in, and, and now we got this. So it's interesting. Hmm. Yes, and something soon shall discover some of the others. So I wanted to turn the conversation to your newest book, uh, Plant Partner Science-Based Companion Planting Strategies for the vegetable garden. Um, so how did that come about? So that's not necessarily insects, but I'm imagining there is some a little bit about attracting beneficials in that book. Yes, of course. I can't write a book without bugs being involved, right? <laughs> uh, so the, the, the answer your question about kind of how the book came to be. Um, so I'm sure that you in this industry and many others in this industry have sort of like an eternal line of questions coming into you about companion planting. And we certainly had our share of them on the radio program. Um, the newspaper columns I used to write for the paper here in Pittsburgh, I was constantly getting questions from readers about companion planting. You know, is this for real? What should I plant these two plants together? Does this work kind of a thing? And I always felt um, really hesitant to give any advice on companion planting because, you know, many of those plant partnerships that sort of, the, I call them old school companion planting uh, strategies were very much based on sort of conjecture, folklore, a little bit of old wives tales, you know, yes, some of them, you know, I've been doing that for years and I had great success, but that doesn't necessarily mean that, you know, everybody's going to have blanket success with them, right? So, in, in the back of my head, though, I also knew that plants interact with each other in a myriad of ways, right? I know they compete for resources. I know they share resources. I know they're connected underground by this extensive network of mycorrhizal fungi, right, that live in the soil and live in the plant's roots. And so I knew they shaded each other out, right? They, they related to each other. They send chemical messages back and forth. So I thought, okay, well, there's all this research on the ways plants interact with each other. So how is that 
how, how has nobody tied that to the practice of companion planting yet? So I kept thinking there has to be research out here that points to this, you know, that how one plant can benefit another plant. And so, you know, I talked to the, the folks at Story Publishing, who are my publisher, and uh, Carlene, who was my acquisitions editor there. You know, she was like, well, you know, we've been thinking about doing a book about companion planting, but we really wanted to make sure, you know, that it was the right approach. It was something that hadn't been done. That it was stuff that is, you know, definitely backed by some research. So I said, okay, well, I'm a nerd. I love to read research. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do this. <laughs> so they let me run with it. And what I found was just an incredible amount of research pointing to plant partnerships that benefit one or both plants or a whole bunch of plants, right? Not just, it's not always just two plants. Sometimes it's a whole bunch of plants. But in none of these research studies did the, did the scientists ever call it companion planting. And... I thought, well, this is companion planting, but they're not using the word, the phrase companion planting. And I think it's because of this sort of folklore base that companion planting has always had. It's had a bad reputation in the scientific community because for so long it was not based in science. So instead, in the research, what you see it called is interplanting, uh, intercropping, creating a polyculture, um, you know, the acts of, of biodiver increasing biodiversity, um, you know, enhancing plant communities. But guess what all of that is? All of that is companion planting. They're just using different words for it, but it's all about which plants can we put together to gain some benefit for the garden. And that's what the book is all about. Yeah, that's such a great point, Jessica, about the different terminology that we're talking about the same thing, but maybe using different words for it. Um, so, and that's great that there was that much research out there. I was thinking that there just wouldn't be, that there's a lot of people doing these practices, but nobody actually doing comparison trials. So where did you find most of your research out there? Was it at agricultural uh, programs and universities? Yep. So most of the studies, um, I w was only able to find a few that took place on really small scale, scale kind of home sort of environment. Most of them happened at agricultural facilities, universities, um, research centers, and things like that. So, you know, we're looking at studies that were done in some cases on a large scale, other cases on a small scale, but they were all done sort of in that quote unquote, farm environment, right? So, um, you know, I would have loved if I could have found, you know, dozens of studies that took place in home vegetable gardens, but those do not exist. So what we're doing and what I did in Plant Partners what was I took the best science that was available to me at the time and am using that to extrapolate what the best partnerships would be that would translate into a backyard environment. You know, I know people are not going to plant fields of canola or, you know, giant fields of uh, mustard, right, to sort of try to cut down on diseases in the soil and things like that, right? So what I did was I went through and I said, okay, well, which ones are most likely to work in a home environment? What are crops that home gardeners grow that were found to be a good partner to another crop? that we can use in our home garden. So, you know, that's what science is about, right? It's taking the best science that's available to us at the moment and then using it to our own benefit. Um, I'm hoping in the future that maybe more studies are done in a home environment, but for now, this is what we have. Hmm. Yeah, I would think that, 
you know, most of it does apply. Of course, we're not on the same scale as a big agricultural operation. But one of my favorite principles that I've mentioned before on this podcast is called trap cropping. And I think you have mentioned that in your book as well. And that's something that you do need a little bit of space, right? Because you need uh, to plant the trap crop away from the desirable crop. Can you talk about that principle a little bit? Yeah, so in some cases you do. So basically a trap crop is is a sacrificial, right? It's a, it's a sacrificial crop. So I'm planting it because I want the pests to go to that crop and leave my desired crop alone, right? So sometimes it's a case of actually wanting to draw them away, to pull them away from the, the, the desired plant. So for example, one of the combinations that there was a good bit of research on is is um, squash vine borers and different types of squash. So what they found was if they planted regular winter squash and summer squash in one part of the garden or field, and then they put blue Hubbard squash way over somewhere else, the blue Hubbard squash sort of lured and pulled the um, squash vine borers over towards it. There were was a greater um, number of squash rind borers on the blue Hubbard squash than there were on all the other squash. And it reduced the amount of damage on all of the other squash, right? So in that case, you want them to be pretty far apart. But then there's other plant partnerships like uh, trap cropping, like, like um, let's say in my garden, I use this one all the time, tomatoes. Um, I plant my tomato seedlings out. And I always, when I put them in the garden, I always plant them amidst my radish plants. So my radish plants, they're cool season. They've been out in the garden for several weeks before the tomato plants go out there. Um, But the flea beetles, they much prefer the radish to my tomato seedlings, right? And if they if they attack the tomato seedlings, that really can stunt the growth of your tomatoes. It's not going to kill them, but it's going to stunt the growth a good bit when the um, you know when the damage is severe. So by planting in that trap crop of radish, the flea beetles stick around on the radish and they leave my tomato seedlings alone. And the cool part about it is radishes are pretty you know they're strong plants. So even though the leaves get nibbled on by the flea beetles, I still get to pick my radishes. Yeah, and. I would not even have thought of that because you're you're doing a cool season and warm season layering of plants. Because most of the time when we're thinking of com- companion planting, we're thinking of planting them side by side. Ah, well, you are because <laughs> you've yep. got you've got that old school companion planting in your head yep, where it has exactly. to be plant A with plant B, and they must be planted at the same time. Mm-hmm. And that's not modern companion planting. Sometimes it's that. Sometimes it's plant A with plant B at the same time. But sometimes it's partnering uh, the uh, the best cover crop, which goes in when the garden is fallow. But yet you'll see results the next year when you plant something else. So like in my garden, I always plant oats in the fall. Oats are like the best cover crop to get started with for people who are new to cover cropping because it enriches the soil. It helps cut down on weeds. And then I can use that to plant that area to plant my kale the following year. And I won't have, you know, disease issues. I won't have as many pest issues and as many weed issues. So it's not necessarily at the same time. It's that the plants are in conjunction with each other. And it's as much about sort of the ecosystem of the garden and fostering the diversity and the stability that a mixed planting brings to the garden uh, and, and that modern companion planting is as much about that as it is plant A with plant B. Hmm. And that sounds, you know, for a beginning gardener, that would be super complex to think about and try to chart out 
say their little vegetable beds of this goes in then this goes in this comes out and there's always the struggle of i want to keep those tomatoes on longer and don't want to plant the cover crop <laughs> because they're at the same time trying to compete for space or same thing with garlic and something else um do you have uh some charts in the books or some progressions of examples of what people can do in their vegetable garden yeah so there's not really charts per se but what there are is it, the book is is divided into seven chapters um and the first chapter uh, obviously, you know, introduces you to sort of the, the, what plant partnerships are, what companion planting is. And then there's basically subsequent chapters are the main goals of companion planting, right? So it could be for soil preparation and conditioning. We could be doing it for weed management. We could be doing it for pest management. We could be doing it for disease management. We could be doing it to enhance biological control, which are the good bugs. We could do it to improve pollination. So each subsequent chapter is dedicated to each one of those topics. And then within that topic chapter are specific plant partnerships or um, uh, strategies that will allow you to meet that goal by combining different plants together. So you say intimidating, you know, it could be intimidating for new gardeners and it might seem intimidating, uh, but the truth is when you're, you know, you're handed an action plan and you're saying, okay, this is what you're gonna do. This is how you do it. These two go together here. All it takes on your part is making a map of your garden and deciding what partnerships you're gonna use in which raised bed or which section of the garden. Um, so that, you know, once you go through the book and you, you see what are your problems, what are you trying to overcome and what plant pairings can make you overcome them, then you need to find the spot in your garden to overcome each one of those. And by making that particular combination. So it's planning. There's, there's no doubt about it. There's planning involved with all of this. Um, but you should be doing that anyway for crop rotation and deciding what varieties you want to grow. So it's just another layer of that. Mm -hmm. And also noting, perhaps maybe going back in your garden journals, if you've kept them and looking at what were your past issues and problems and, and what needs to be solved. So if you know that, say, every year flea beetles come in around June 5th to your garden, um, then you can plan and have, you know, some type of plan <laughs> in place to combat them, maybe with a trap crop or, or other um, strategy. Right, absolutely. And like I mentioned, I mean, the pest management tends, tends to be sort of the, um, you know, it's, it's one chapter in the book, but yet it tends to be the aspect of companion planting that people seem to be most drawn to, um, you know, because that's, again, sort of along the lines with the old school companion planting, right? So much of that was mm -hmm. targeted at pest management. So I do cover it quite in depth in the book. Obviously, it's not the only thing we can, you know, only benefit that we see, but there's some really amazing and really cool studies mm -hmm. um, that take a look at plant partnerships to manage pests and how that works. Um, and so that for me was some of the most interesting science that's out there on this was involving the different ways that you can help manage and limit pest damage by, you know, making certain combinations of plants in the garden. And in particular, if making everything as diverse as possible. Don't plant anything in a row. Mm -hmm. Nothing should be planted in a straight row. It should all be planted in a, in a mixed habitat in the garden. You don't need to take a tractor through your garden to mechanically harvest your tomatoes. So there's absolutely no reason why your tomatoes all have to be in a row. 
right? Um, you know, same thing with your peppers or your kale. You're not running a machine down there to make a harvest. You're going out there and picking a basket or something to, to make your dinner. So there's no reason why things have to be in a row and why they have to be like islands all amongst their themselves in the garden. You got to plant things around them. Bring in flowering plants. Get lots of nectar and pollen there for the pollinators, for the beneficial I know um, predators that eat the pests. You know, you want to, to have that environment for everybody to thrive in the garden. Well, that is great news to me, Jessica, because I am a messy gardener. <laughs> see, I don't see it as messy. I see yeah. it. As, that's interesting that you mm-hmm. say that, Kathy, because I think it's beautiful because I think it mimics yes. natural plant communities. Mm-hmm. And you might call them messy, right? That's biodiversity, right? Yep. It's not neat and tidy. You know, some plants compete more than others, take up more space than others, right? And that's okay. It's fine. Everything is mixed. And what's cool about it is, you know, when you're talking about pests, one of the easiest things that that gardeners can do is is plant a mixed habitat like that. Because there's a really interesting theory, and I, I talk about it in the book, it's called the inappropriate and appropriate landings theory. And the theory is that Um, you know, well, this part's not a theory, but we know that bugs have sort of like taste receptors on the bottom of their feet, right? Especially bugs that are pests that are going to lay eggs on a plant, right? So they land on that plant and they sort of taste it with their feet and they know whether or not that's the plant where they're supposed to lay their eggs. So we'll use the cabbage butterfly, right? The white butterfly that lays the cabbage worms. Mm-hmm. We'll use that as an example. That butterfly has to land on it, one of its host plants, which are members of the cabbage family, a certain number of times in order for the egg laying behavior to be triggered. It's not just land on the cabbage plant and lay an egg immediately. It's land on the plant, taste it, okay, land again, okay, land again, right? So it's a certain number of times for each insect that it has to, the egg laying behavior has to be triggered, right? If you don't have your cabbages all in a row and instead you have them interplanted with a bunch of different plants, whether that's some zinnias or some pepper plants or some kale, well, not kale, because that's also a coal plant, but maybe it's radishes, maybe it's, you know, your tomato plants, whatever, or some dill or some flowers, it's all interplanted together. That cabbage butterfly is going to land on the cabbage plant the first time it lands. The next time, maybe it'll land on a zinnia. The next time, maybe it'll land on the dill plant, right? And so every time it lands on a different plant, that trigger mechanism is reset. So it resets back to first time I'm landing on the cabbage, right? So if you have a mixed habitat, the the mechanism that fires the egg laying for that pest is reduced. So you're not, you're naturally going to have a lower number of eggs laid on that cabbage plant. So it's almost like creating a scattershot target for them. So they, if you yes. plant it in yep. a straight row, obviously you're, you're putting a big giant arrow. Yes. To say, <laughs> Bingo. This, is, this is where my corn is. This is where my tomato is. So you had mentioned um, some of the other ways that plant partners are beneficial to each other. Um, Could you describe some of those? Sure. So um, when we look at something like weed management, you know, weed management, one of the biggest, biggest and best groups of plants to look at partnerships with for weed management are living mulches. So these would be plants that we plant sort of under the skirts of our vegetable plants. 
and they smother out any weeds. So something like crimson clover or white Dutch clover, they act as a living mulch or even something like your cucumbers, letting your cucumbers ramble around the soil underneath your okra or your tomato plants is going to limit the number of weeds because it shades the soil, it protects the soil, shades out the weed seeds, and so you're not going to have as much competition. In some cases, some of those living mulches and plants also produce allelopathic chemicals, which are growth inhibiting chemicals. So they um, are sort of doing it as a way to reduce their own competition. And when they produce those chemicals, then it restricts the growth of other nearby plants. And so you can use that to your advantage, right? Because it's going to restrict the germination of certain weed seeds. So that's another really good way to see weed management. And I'm glad, Jessica, that you said the term, and I'm going to try to butcher it now, Allelopathic. 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 Yes. I can never say that correctly. So you think if you learned maybe in biology about alleles, right, when mm-hmm. you talk about um, cells and things like that. So allelopathic. So put allele and opathic together. Allelopathic. Allelopathic. Right. It's just, it's it is still, a tongue twister, though. It's still a tough one. Yeah. And it's not, not that much easier to spell, but we'll try to put that in the uh, podcast notes for our listeners. Um, so that principle is why I think that people are not wanting to plant, say, under a black walnut tree because the roots for that um, are allelopathic. Yeah, so there's a debate. <laughs> yes. There's a mm-hmm. debate. There's a debate that storms around, right? Juglone and walnut trees, and that's not necessarily what this is about. But there's a lot of interesting research on it, and which plants that the juglone restricts, which parts of the tree it's produced from, how long it lasts in the soil and all that stuff. There's all kinds of, you know, different research and therefore different opinions about that. But what I can say is that in researching for the book, when we look at something like, um, like winter rye, which is a very commonly used cover crop, there is just boatloads of research looking at the allelopathic chemicals in rye and how using it as a cover crop and leaving the, especially leaving the detrius, you know, the clippings in place uh, about how that can reduce the germination of weed seeds and really help to control weeds from growing in the garden. So there's a lot of information out there about it, um, especially in use in the vegetable garden. And I've also heard that sunflowers have some of that same effect. How are they as plant partners? Do you find anything interesting for them? Yeah, they do. And actually the highest, um, you know, amounts of their allelopathic chemicals are found in the hulls of the seeds. So if you, you know, use black oil sunflower seeds in your bird's feeder and they leave the hulls behind to fall on the floor, you, you know, the grass will die, things won't grow so well under there. And that's because over time, those allelopathic chemicals can build up in the soil. Um, you know, is it going to prevent everything from germinating in there? No, it's definitely not. Um, so, you know, it depends on how much is contained in each particular plant, whether you leave the debris there or you collect it or you mow it or you turn it under, you know, there's lots of different factors that play into the amount uh, of the weed control effect that you're going to see. It's so fascinating when you start to get into it. And then there's the whole separate world, and we probably don't even have time on this podcast to talk about fungal associations and the little underground plant network that if you have seen that popular Hollywood movie, (laughs) Avatar, kind of hinted and showed you some of that. Um, But 
what did you find in your book was a good a plant association that took advantage of those two techniques? Yeah. So, I mean, the, it's like a highway it's like underground, right? It's mm-hmm. just a highway of all of these, you know, billions of fungal hyphae in a single tablespoon of healthy garden soil. And they form these like thread-like structures, microscopic thread-like structures underground, and they link plants together. And a lot of people think about them in terms of large perennial plants like trees. You know, you'll see sometimes on Facebook, those little movies about, you know, how the trees are talking to each other and they're communicating and they're doing it in part through the fungal hyphae network. They share resources, they transfer carbohydrates, they, um, you know, bring nutrients into the, the tree's roots, but they also interact with our annual plants, like most of our vegetables that are grown in the vegetable garden. Now, they're different species of fungal organisms, but they're still there. And, um, you know, this is why I'm an advocate of no-till gardening. So I don't till my garden at all. I don't turn the soil. I don't disturb it because I don't want to disrupt the fungal network and, of course, all the insects and other living organisms and microbes in that soil as well, which all benefit our plants in a very natural way. So I am, I'm a no-till gardener. I've been, you know, adding organic matter to the top of my soil for years, and I let the microbes do the work of processing it and turning it in. So, you know, you ask how we can maybe use those, that network to our advantage. And I would say probably one of the easiest ways to do that in the garden is um, by interplanting a nitrogen hungry crop, like let's say lettuce, with a leguminous crop, uh, which would be a member of the pea and bean family, which a lot of times you see pea and bean family members like clovers and alfalfa and cowpeas being used as a cover crop because they fix nitrogen, right? They take nitrogen from the air and convert it into a form that's usable by plants. But a lot of people think you only get the benefits of that if you mow down the cover crop and you turn it into the ground and you let let it break down and decompose and release that nitrogen into the soil. But there's also a good amount of nitrogen transfer that takes place through the fungal hyphae network in part under the ground while those plants are in a living state. So if you interplant your peas or beans with your lettuce, you're going to have a small amount of nitrogen transfer that takes place from the pea and bean plant, provides it to the um, the the lettuce plant or the greens and really can help fuel that growth. So that happens in a living state too, not as dramatically as it does when you turn a cover crop under uh, and it breaks down in place, but it certainly happens and it can certainly be, it can be a great plant partnership to reduce your fertilizer needs. Hmm. Well, I'm certainly feeling super smart because I just planted a row of lettuce at the feet of my peas. There you go. (laughs) There you go. So um, this has been so fascinating and there's so much more in the book uh, that we could discuss, but I'm going to ask our listeners to run out and buy a copy and we'll put a link in the show notes as well to Plant Partners. And where else can our listeners find you on social media? Sure. So they can find me through all of our um, social media channels on Savvy Gardening. Um, We are on pretty much every, we're not on TikTok yet. We've talked about it, but we haven't done that yet. So, um, you know, we're on YouTube and Instagram and Facebook and Twitter uh, and Pinterest as well. They can also find me personally, which is at Jessica Walliser uh, on everything but Pinterest um, I'm on. So they can follow me there as well. Great. And do you have any upcoming events or talks that you'd like our listeners to know about? 
Oh gosh, do I? <laughs> I'm living I'm living week by week. I, yes. I feel like with this book, podcasts have been my thing. But you know what? If they follow me on social media, they'll be able to see. I always post when I'm going to be out and about in particular places, um, giving talks or doing something, uh, a video or a podcast. I will always advertise that on um, on Facebook or Twitter. Great. Well, you are one busy lady, Jessica. <laughs> So it's true, but it keeps me out of trouble, Kathy. Yes. <laughs> and thank you for joining us on the Garden DC podcast. Thank you so much for the invitation. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Plant Profile Snapdragons Snapdragon Antirhinum Magus are a cool season annual, sometimes a tender perennial. Like pansies and violas that bloom in the shoulder seasons of early spring and late fall, they stop blooming through the coldest part of winter, but hold on to their green foliage and bounce back once the weather warms up here in the Mid-Atlantic. The Snapdragon makes an excellent container plant, and its flowers come in a wide range of colors, from whites to oranges and yellows to pinks and purples. The common name Snapdragon originates from the flower's reaction to having their throats squeezed, which causes the mouth of the flower to snap open like a dragon. Snapdragons are low care. Just plant them in a sunny spot and make sure they do not entirely dry out. Mulching and snipping off their spent blooms can help them stay healthy and floriferous, but it's not required. And oh yeah, they are deer resistant. That makes them pretty useful among other cool season annuals that are practically deer and rabbit candy. So if you have a bare spot in a better container in the cooler gardening months, think about adding snapdragons. What's new this week? Well, today, March 20th, is the first day of spring, and I could not be happier. We have our March issue of Washington Gardener magazine out and sent to subscribers now, and that includes a cover story on the year of the hyacinth. Inside, you'll find stories on how to grow parsnips, the best echinacea for our region, and a terrific article on brood 10 cicadas and how you can cope with them in your garden. In my own garden, speaking of which, I have decorated for the National Cherry Blossom Festival's Petal Porch Parade and invite you to come by if you're near downtown Silver Spring. Uh, just look for the public storage building at 7800 Fenton Street and I am right across from that. You'll see my flamingo party going on in my yard. And I have a couple webinars coming up that I'd love to invite you to sign up for. One is hosted by homesteadgardens.com, 
and that will be on Container Gardening on Wednesday, April 7th at 7 p.m. That fills up fast. It is free and anybody can sign up for it. So go ahead and get your reservation in now. The other one has a nominal fee. It's hosted by Brookside Gardens and you can find out information on that at Active Montgomery website. And that one is $10 for Friends of Brookside, $12 for everybody else. And that's a talk on Saturday, April 10th at 10 a.m. on small trees and large shrubs for urban and small gardens. So I hope you can join me for one of those. Another upcoming event I'd love to have you join me at is the Leesburg Flower and Garden Festival. Um, An advertisement for that is on the back page of our March issue. Um, You can also just Google Leesburg Flower Garden Festival and find out all the details on that. Uh, It is taking place the weekend of April 17th, 18th outside of downtown Leesburg um, in the park. Uh, So there's more spacing and they are now requiring tickets this year. It used to be just anybody could walk up and walk in when it was downtown but because of covid and social distancing um, they're just going to require online registration in advance and speaking of which i do have our seed exchange back on the schedule and that is happening saturday april 3rd at brookside gardens Uh, but that is again by registration in advance only due to covid and we will allow small groups in at a time The link for that is also in our March issue. And happy gardening. Enjoy your spring. Thank you for listening to Garden DC. You can become a listener supporter by going to anchor.fm backslash Kathy dash gents backslash support. For as little as 99 cents a month, you can become a listener supporter and we'll give you a shout out in a future episode. Another way to support Garden DC is to go to washingtongardener.com and subscribe to Washington Gardener magazine. Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. You can find Washington Gardener online at WashingtonGardener.com, on Twitter at WDC Gardener, on Instagram at WDC Gardener, and on Facebook.com at Washington Gardener Magazine.